The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. He was a successful novelist, a former spy, and what he later called a Catholic agnostic. She was an American heiress, married to a British farmer and politician. The writer and the American fell in love shortly after World War II. He left his wife and family for her, but because of his Catholicism, could not get a divorce. After four tumultuous years, the writer drew upon the experience of the affair to write one of his greatest novels, The End of the Affair. His name, of course, was Graham Greene. Her name was Catherine Walston. The novel is dedicated to C in the British version. In the American version, Green and his publishers were more forthcoming, writing it out as to Catherine, an act of defiance or self-sabotage, perhaps, a very typical gesture for Green, who sometimes seemed so miserable he saw no choice but to set himself on fire and burn down everything around him as well. It worked more or less. Her husband finally could not ignore the affair, and he finally took some action, but Catherine would not leave him because she respected him, and Green was stuck too, unable to divorce his wife. They both had other lovers as well. Green went to a priest who told him he would have to give up the affair, and Green's response was, well, I'm afraid I shall have to find another confessor. The affair did not end until 1966, almost 20 years after it began. Its origins were unusual to say the least. Green married a woman named Vivian and converted to her faith, Catholicism. Catherine, inspired by Green's novels about Catholicism, decided that she too should become Catholic, and she wrote to Green to see if he would sponsor her. He became her godfather, but he couldn't make it to the ceremony, so Vivian went in his place. Green and Catherine were having their affair soon after that. Their letters are full of details that will be familiar to anyone familiar with the novel. Their private word for sex, onions, is lifted from real life. Green's romantic nature is clear from the letters. She, a millionaire, arranged for a private plane to fly him home to Oxford. A lock of hair touches one's eyes in a plane with East Anglia under snow, he wrote, and one is in love. Green's mix of sin, guilt, depression, a crazy personal life, quote, grotesquely complicated, end quote, he once said, a background in spying and espionage, a deep love of literature and film, an undeniable talent for plots and prose and sharp observations, all of this feeds into the end of the affair. So too does his mix of death and devastation, sex and spiritual uplift, respect and regret. He told Catherine about a dream he once had in which he had died. Even dead, he said, there were women and bedrooms. The end of the affair captures this atmosphere well, and this question, how do we balance the mundane, the earthly, the carnality of human existence with the ethereal affairs of the heart and mind and soul? Also on the American version, or at least the one I have in my hand, are words of praise for the book. Quote, There are exceedingly few novelists, said the Atlantic Monthly, who can match Green's superb command of language, mood, and suspense. A masterpiece, end quote. And there's this. For me, 
one of the best, most true, and moving novels of my time in anybody's language, William Faulkner. We have a special guest today, Laura Marsh, literary editor of The New Republic and co-host of the podcast, The Politics of Everything. She's here to discuss one of her favorite books and mine, The End of the Affair. That's coming up today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. How many times, people, how many times have I mentioned that this is probably my favorite novel? I've told you all the stories, haven't I? Well, I guess it depends if you've been listening to every episode. Some of you haven't. Let's just say this novel has a special place for me, and I am not Catholic, not even close. I was one of those Protestant kids who didn't have to go to CCR and was glad I didn't. And whatever that was, it took kids away from the softball game we played after school, and I was happy playing softball. On a more serious note, I quickly fell into a kind of deep agnosticism myself, happy to respect the religious feelings of others, curious about it, impressed by the impact that religion has had on civilization, intellectually curious about the arguments and the explanations and the beauty once in a while feeling a kind of epiphany, but not the sort of pull into deep belief. 99% of books about religion don't really speak to me, but that 1% is a killer. <laughs> this book is in that 1%, but I don't think it's the religion that gets me. It's the raw humanity of it and the seemingly effortless art. It's so moving and so, so readable. It's nearly impossible to do. Nearly impossible to pull that off at such a high level. Okay, we'll get into all this with our guest. So I don't want to spoil too much here. Speaking of spoilers, we are going to have them in this episode. This is your official spoiler alert. And ordinarily, I'm pretty casual about spoilers. I mean, I'm going to go ahead and mention the ending to Moby Dick or Huck Finn. These books are 100 years old or more. It's not exactly a secret. I can remember Peanuts, the comic strip, spoiling Citizen Kane for me when I was about five years old. Who cares? It was still a great movie. Still loved watching it. Still learned from it. Ending was still great. But this one, with this book, maybe because I love the book so much, I want to let you know that you might want to pause this episode, read the book, which is not that long, and come back to listen afterwards. There's nothing quite like Reading the End of the Affair for the First Time. It's a book that rewards rereading as well. I've probably read it a, a dozen times by now, but there's nothing quite like that first reading of it. And Laura and I are going to mention things that will interfere with the purity of that first read. If you don't mind, that's fine too. I often listen to things, even with the spoilers. I don't mind having a few things spoiled for me. If that's you feel free to listen. I'm not here to tell you what to do. Who am I to tell you what to do? You are a sovereign entity in my humble estimation. I remain, sir or madam, your humble and obedient servant. Speaking of which, we might finally have our Life of Johnson episode coming up. We'll see. That's, that's another gift to myself. Chekhov, 
this book today and Boswell, it seems I have my own sovereign streak. Or maybe I'm a humble and obedient servant to myself. Or to literature. Hmm. That's a little grandiose, even for me. Let's hear from a listener. This comes from Emily, and I thought it was appropriate for today. Oh, excuse me. Someone opening the door. Come in. Yes. Hello. Is that an orchestra here? Hello. Who are you? What are you doing here? Hello. I'm Emily Dickinson. I've written a poem in honor of that impudent scallywag, Jack Wilson. Wow. Here it is. Yes. My life has stood, a loaded gun, in corners till today. I listened to his podcast and sent him some money. Won't you please support the cause of literature and the arts? Thank you, Emily. You heard your name and you showed up. My dear Emily, thank you for joining us. But you're not the Emily we're looking for today, although we do appreciate your helping us out in our hucksterism. (laughs) Huckstaberry Finn, I've been called. And I don't think it was a compliment. But what can I do when saying the word Emily evokes the spirit of the wonderful Ms. Dickinson, one of my favorite poets? And what can you do when that spirit is invoked. But head on over to patreon.com slash literature and throw a little jingle in the jangle, small monthly contribution, and in return, you receive our undying gratitude. This week, we're thanking new patrons, Stephen and Andrew, and who else? Kevin and Laura. That's right, Stephen, Andrew, Kevin, and Laura. Thank you very much, you dear, sweet saints. And if a one-time donation is your thing, you can go to historyofliterature.com slash shop, or you can subscribe, rate and review, all that good stuff. Okay, email from Emily. Subject, thank you. Hi, Jack. As the subject line betrays, I would like to say thank you for the brilliant work you do on the History of Literature show. I discovered it, as I'm sure many others did, during those long free hours the pandemic burdened us with. Your podcast, however, lightened that burden beyond measure. And even though the pandemic is coming to a much-anticipated... Oh, this email is from, uh, from a few weeks ago. Let's hope that stays true. Let's hope this recent uptick is temporary. Laura says, even though it's coming to a much-anticipated end, I'm still listening. I'm hopefully headed to Cambridge if I get the grades. I find out in about a week's time to study English in October, and your podcast is the perfect accompaniment to my summer of intensive reading. Wow. Emily, look at this. I kind of can't bear to know how it turned out. I so want to hear that everything always works out for everyone. I hate disappointment. On the other hand, as someone who has survived a million disappointments, and here my thought is to add, has survived them cockroach-like. But then I think, Jack, come on, are you really comparing yourself with a cockroach? So I mentally revise this to phoenix-like. That's a survivor too, but no. My editor's pen is too strong, and I think that's just not right. I'm not a mythic being rising from ashes. I'm buried in failures, 
heavy loads of them, and yet I crawl out of the smoking wreckage and look around and think, here I am. Not a good thing, not a bad thing, just a fact. So yes, I have survived a million disappointments, roach-like. Might as well own it if that's what I am. I've survived, and you can too, Emily. I hope you're a phoenix. If so, please do soar. If you're like me, not quite a phoenix, don't worry. We roaches do okay for ourselves, too. There's something pleasant about misery when you have company, which I love. Back to the email. Among my favorites, she's talking about episodes now. Among my favorites are the ones on Jean Rhys, who is quite possibly my favorite author, and Madame Bovary, which put a smile on my face that lasted the whole day. It was such a sweet story and such a brilliant discussion. I also appreciate the Beatles references. They are my favorite band, and the comparison you drew between the end of I Want You, She's So Heavy, and Here Comes the Sun... In your Shakespeare's Greatest Sonnets episodes was, I felt, particularly perfect. Although I must confess that my favorite song on Abbey Road, which is my favorite album of theirs, is actually I Want You, exactly for its tunneling darkness. Take from that what you will about me. I must blame you, however, for the exponential expansion of my Goodreads want-to-read list. The enthusiasm with which you talk about literature is contagious even to a self-confessed bookworm like me, and I note down nearly every book you mention that isn't already on my radar. So thanks again, and please don't stop. The episodes I have left, though they are many and feel like a delicious treasure trove just waiting for me to dive into, will never be enough to satisfy me. Emily, smiley face. Smiley face. What a wonderful person, Emily. So generous in your comments. Thank you so much for emailing me. I truly appreciate it. And you, speaking of appreciation, you are the right kind of Beatles appreciator. I think you went straight to I Want You, She's So Heavy, and felt like, mm-hmm, yes, 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 dig, dig, dig. It's like on the end, also on Abbey Road. And the three guitarists, you know this story, right? Throw out Her Majesty. The end is the end for the Beatles. The last song on the last album. And they were a band. They had always been a band. The four of them as individuals were wonderful, but when they were together, they had a special magic. Everyone commented upon it. They said, when there's two in the room, you'll feel it. When there's three, it's getting, getting there. When there's all four, it will blow you away. And one thing that they had not really done on a song before is trade solos. Ringo hardly ever had a drum solo. He was too busy playing the perfect part in service of the song. George, too. But this song, they have a drum solo, and then the other three trade guitar solos, and you can hear their personality in the solos coming across, commenting on one another. And John's solo is grungy, dredging all those j -j -j sounds. J -j 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 grungy, dredging, moving forward through the darkness, through the pain, not giving us the soaring, airy search of George or the chipper blues of Paul, but a driving, digging, force. Pain, but moving forward. Blind, but looking for answers. Here for you, but not giving. Just here if you need it, because here. Here anyway. Here. You can talk to me. Remember that from Hey Bulldog? That 
full-throated, heartfelt refrain in a throwaway song. You can talk to me. If you're lonely, you can talk to me. Tunneling darkness is the perfect word for it. It's in I Want You, and it's in the end, and it runs all through John. Okay, there's a little more Beatles for you. Thanks for you for the email, Emily, and good luck to you. I'm sure you're going to be amazing in life, no matter what happens. Okay, now we've got to get to Graham Greene. Please do go and read The End of the Affair if you'd like. It's your last warning. Think about Mr. Green in the context of the 20th century. When you're reading this book, I remember as things were turning from the 90s to the aughts and people were saying the 20th century was about the individual's relationship to the state. Should you be a communist or a liberal Democrat or or a, a Maoist or what? What Are you soldiers in an army? Are you Nazis, fascists? How, what are, are you an ism, part of an ism? How is power grabbed and controlled? Does it flow up from the people or does it get seized and parsed out? Are we free? What are our obligations to the state? And so on. And the argument was that with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the breakup of the Soviet Union, that question had been answered. History was over. And in the 21st century, we'd be wrestling with what it meant to be human. Cloning, artificial intelligence, robots... That kind of thing. Can we kill a robot? Is that murder? What if you kill someone else's robot? What if they're in love with that robot? Should we allow cloning? And when and for what purpose? And maybe that's been a bit of a change. Maybe we have seen that. But guess what? I think that framework misses something different and something that's still with us. Here's another way to think about it. In 2009... As it was turning to 2010, I was talking to a colleague. We were flying to London on a work trip right around Christmas time. Oh boy, December in London, are you kidding? That's the best. I was in the hotel watching TV, the BBC. They were about to name Mariah Carey's song the greatest Christmas song ever. I don't know what I was expecting them to pick. <laughs> And I was surprised by that. In Italy, I was surprised they listened to U2, or as they put it, Udue, at a wedding. Udue, although they call the who the who and not il chi, as I found out when I asked about it and provoked some hysterical laughter. I thought they'd be listening. I don't know what I thought they'd be listening to at a wedding. The Tarantella. Finicoli, Finicola, that kind of thing. And I guess I thought in London they'd be listening to or listing God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen as the number one Christmas song of all time. I thought, why are we listening to that song about happenies and the goose getting fat and all that stuff? Was that <laughs> Were those things ever a big deal in America? Why are we singing about it? I thought we inherited it from England. But if they don't care, if they're listening to Mariah Carey, why is our radio playing happenies and saying God bless you? Isn't that Dinkensian? Can't they own it? Take some ownership, London. Gouverneurs. Okay. Anyway, talking to a colleague. It's Christmas 2009. And I said, oh, good Lord. What an awful decade. Good riddance. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, look. Look at the 2000s. We started things off with a 
contested election and a nightmare in Florida with hanging chads and all that. What a ridiculous event that was. And then September 11th came and anthrax, tragedies, wars ever since, a financial meltdown. The news got worse and worse. It was unrelenting. And she said, well, when I think about the 2000s, I think I got married and had two kids. Not all bad. So then I got home and I was telling my wife this story and I was going to mention what my colleague said. But before I got to that, my wife said, bad decade. That's your view of it. Didn't we get married this decade? Didn't we have two kids? And I said, I was about to say that. (laughs) You cut me off. (laughs) I was getting there. So then I called my parents to wish them a happy new year. And before I could say anything, my mom said, Well, we have a new decade. Let's hope it's as good as the last one. I have a new daughter-in-law and a new son-in-law and three beautiful new grandchildren. It's the way of the world. It's the way of being in the world. On the one hand, we think, how's my country doing? What am I doing for my country or my political party or my cause? What is my cause? Is it saving the world or ending hunger and poverty or getting rid of gun violence? Or maybe in your case, it's something else. Maybe it's promoting Christianity or protecting free speech or the right to bear arms or whatever it is. Maybe you're in an organization or you want to be. Maybe that organization is an institution like a church. Or maybe it's an army or a country or a cause, a higher power, something bigger than you, something communal or ideological. You're putting yourself at the service of something. At the same time, you have other pressures on you, don't you? The ones that come from within can still be big. Those are big concepts, but they're localized in you. Family, love, faith, hope, joy. Might be respect for others or loyalty to a friend. It's not the same as the grandiose It's not saying, what a decade, we fought two wars. It's saying, what a decade, I grew, I developed, I changed, I fell in love, I fell out of love, I became a parent, I dealt with loss, I know grief now, I know pain, I know success. My heart grew to a size I didn't know was possible. We run on both those tracks all the time the macro and the micro, and Graham Greene captures that as well as anyone I know. It feels like a Cold War kind of question. What if you're a communist living in the West? Are you more loyal to communism or to your country? Do you stand up for your government or your friends? And do you sacrifice your individual bundle of wants and needs and hopes and fears, all those ups and downs that belong to all of us and sustain and nurture us? Do you Set those aside to serve something else. And if so, what is that thing? Is it your lover? Is it your country? Is it your church? Is it your God? That's what Green gets at. And I, in my fumbling way, try to ask Laura. She does her best, as my guests always do. (laughs) It's the questions that I can never get quite right. Luckily, with a Laura Marsh, I don't need to be excellent because she brings enough excellence for the both of us. Here we go. Laura Marsh and Graham Greene's The End of the Affair after this.
Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Laura Marsh, the literary editor of The New Republic. She has written for the New York Review of Books, where she was also an editor in many other publications. She's currently the co-host of The Politics of Everything, a podcast that explores the intersection of culture, media, and politics on a bi-weekly basis. And this is exciting for me. She's here today to talk about the podcast, her work as an editor, and Graham Greene's novel, The End of the Affair. Laura Marsh, welcome to the History of Literature. Hi, thank you for having me on. So I feel a little bit like a, a military historian who's talking to a soldier who's just returned from combat. I, I feel like I sit on the sidelines and try to figure out literature mostly for myself and, and with low stakes, but you're in the thick of the literary fray. And I'm wondering, does it take away from your enjoyment of literature to know that your positions might lead to a, a raucous debate, or does that just add to the excitement? Um, I, I mean, I think that debating books is all part of the excitement of reading, whether it's just a debate that you're having on your own in your head or with some friends, or what I'm really lucky to be able to be part of at the magazine is to have a debate where you could be, you know, you could, so many people get involved and have a response to your opinion. Yeah, right. And the, the stakes are higher. You could feel like lives could be changed or you can move things in a, in a certain direction. I don't know how often that happens, but I think that, um, I mean, if you're talking about changing lives on the level of someone really loving a book, they discover that I definitely agree with that. Mm. Um, but, but in general, I think that we're just, you know, we're just like one very small voice in this debate. And sometimes if we have negative opinion or some bigger critique, then that becomes part of the conversation. But very rarely, I think, would it be, you know, are you dictating opinion for every reader of the book? Right. But maybe you're, you're opening a new door or you're calling for a reconsideration of, of a particular way of thinking about a book or about an author that might move people in, in kind of a political direction. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think, um, you know, the nature of the section that I edit appears in the back of a magazine that's primarily occupied with politics. So, Often the kinds of considerations of books that I'm publishing 
have pick up a political theme in a book or and often in a quite unexpected way hmm. which i always find really interesting because that stuff is sometimes just beneath the surface but you don't really think about it sometimes yeah Right. Well, recently there, I think you were in the middle of a, a Philip Roth reconsideration, and and it seems like you know part of your position was basically to say, hey, there's some stuff here that's not okay, and let's not overlook the stuff that's that's not okay, whether it's with his biography or whether it's with his biographer or whether it's uh, things we find in the fiction itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that was an unusual, uh, an unusually contested <laughs> book, right? Uh, for reasons that we're all kind of familiar with now. But um, yeah, I mean, I think part of the challenge of writing about Philip Roth at this point is that so many people have staked their positions and explored different angles. Yeah. Um, when I started thinking about writing about that book, I thought maybe I maybe I won't have anything to say. Yeah. <laughs> um, it didn't turn out that way. But um, that, that can sometimes be the tricky part. Right. I was going to ask actually if, you felt like passions were still running really high or if he's faded enough from the current view that that the stakes didn't feel quite as high as it might have, say, 20 years ago? I think both, if that's possible. Yeah. Um, definitely from the reaction that I saw from my piece and from other great pieces that were published about the book, this is the subject people are still really invested in. Yeah. And yeah. especially certain subset of Ross fans to criticize him feels extremely personal. Mm. But on the other hand, I think the kind of piece I wrote it would have been very hard to have written uh, 20 years ago, especially when he was still alive. Because yeah. Actually, as the biography explains, sure. he, took, he, he noted these things and he kind of would try to get his own back on his critics, even if they were just an otherwise quite... Uh, insignificant book reviewer compared to the great Philip Roth. Right. Yeah. It's uh he's a, we have not yet covered him. I'm I'm planning to soon. He's uh he, <laughs> I'm not sure we'll be able to to uh complete his his whole career and and just all the different facets of him in just one episode. You'll have to do a like a, a breakout series like serial. Yeah. <laughs> Twelve parts on Philip Roth. <laughs> Right. Okay. Well, let's back up a little bit and talk about you. Uh, where did you grow up? Um, well, so I'm from England. Um, I grew up in um, the south of England in a small town in Bedfordshire um, mm. that you probably won't have heard of. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what what kind of a childhood was it? Is that a was it a remote village and it was you and a library full of books or? Well, in England. Very few places are actually remote because mm. it's a pretty small island full of like millions of people. Um, but it was in the countryside, um, about an hour away from London. Um, but the town itself was pretty small. There was like 10,000 people. Mm. We had a really great public library that was heavily used <laughs> when I was growing up. Yeah. So that was my, yeah, that was definitely my main source of books. Right. And how was literature? part of your life? Was it something you gravitated toward early on? Yeah, definitely. Um, my mom taught me to read at home before I went to school. And mm-hmm. was always very proactive about taking me to the library and filling up my library card. Um, my parents themselves are not, didn't have that kind of literary background. Mm-hmm. They didn't go to college, um, but really believed in books as mm. like a, an important thing 
how should I put that? They, they really believe that you could educate yourself about anything by reading a book. Yeah. There's definitely a strong streak of autodidacticism. Mm hmm. And I think. Is that, is that the correct form? Yeah. Isn't that a little more common in England than we would say here? I, I, I feel like the I heard once that the percentages of the adult population that go to college is is lower. Yeah, it, it's much lower, um, or it was. So, yeah, among people I grew up with, I probably only had two friends whose parents had been to college. Mm, um, mm -hmm. It was really in the 90s that college enrollment went up significantly mm -hmm. um, when Tony Blair was the prime minister. Um, so it wasn't particularly unusual that my parents didn't go to college. And they're both professional people, but they didn't have degrees. Mm -hmm. Right. But they were fans of just books of any sort, or did they like fiction and poetry in particular? Um, well, my dad is kind of like the classic dad reader. So <laughs> there were like <laughs> many shelves of World War II history, yep. sort of military history, <laughs> a lot of books on like naval strategy. <laughs> uh, and then like you have your ancient Rome section. Yep. Um, <laughs> and so yeah, like he was a he's a very big nonfiction reader. And I read a lot of those and then like historical fiction set in those periods. Right. Uh so a big reading project for me when I was like ten was reading these kind of weirdly sexy books about Ramesses the Great that my dad just thought were like the most brilliant works of fiction he'd ever read. <laughs> um, it was a lot of like haphazard reading. I think when you don't, when you're growing up in s s sort of at a distance from literary culture, you're sort of figuring out what you like. Yeah. And also at the same time, really mystified by the question of what is good, what's considered good, what's considered worth reading. Um, yeah. Trying to like put the path between those two things. Yeah. I remember when I went to college, I, I knew nothing about literature, really. I discovered it all in college. And I remember I took a couple of books and when I got there, my roommate had been, he had been educated by Jesuits. And so he had a whole shelf full of Loeb Classical Library lined up, you know, with all of the, all of these great <laughs> ancient works. And I had a copy of King Lear, which I had bought like in a, a mall bookstore and thought, you know, I should read some Shakespeare right? Be, just because it seemed important and, and weighty, but I had never managed mm -hmm. to make it past a couple of pages. So I brought it along with me to college thinking I might need it. And then I had a copy of a Gore Vidal novel, which seemed um, kind of historical and kind of smart. And I also thought, well, this must be the kind of thing that people read when they're in college. But I was so clueless about it that it, I immediately realized how naive I had been when I saw what everyone else was reading and just the confidence that everyone else seemed to have about what they should be reading. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know what you mean. Before I, before I went to college, the university had sent a reading list of books you were expected to have read mm. before you arrived. And one of them was Ulysses. Mm. And so I had like gone through my summer calendar, just blocking off like three days here, three days there for each book. I'm like, okay, three days to read Howard's End, but yeah, I'm forced to that. That's probably doable. Yeah. And then I blocked off two days for Ulysses. <laughs> and I didn't get past like the first 10 pages. I just kept reading the first 10 pages in these two right, days. Right. And so I arrived, arrived just being like, well, I'm going to have to like pump on this one. Yeah. Right. Well, that seems to lead right into the end of the affair. Although I did want to ask you 
when it was that you decided you could turn literature into a career, if that was something that came about in college or after, or seems like kind of a reach from where you started out in life. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think naively, when I was a teenager, I thought that I was going to be a famous poet. Mm. And I thought this was a viable career path because I'd met a few people who were actually poets, like as a full-time job. Mm. Um, <laughs> and so I thought, well, I'll do that. Yeah. Like, that must be a job that you can get. Right. I've seen some people do it. And so I think that I, I started out from that like incredibly unrealistic aspiration and then slowly managed my expectations down mm. to the point of being like, well, maybe you could edit, <laughs> you know, like a literary magazine yeah. or something. Right, right. And yeah, I was always struck by, I, I remember looking around and saying, how do writers, if they're getting paid hardly anything for a short story or if a novel can only come out every few years and then it doesn't sell that many copies, how do they do it? And looking around, my examples were people like Hemingway and Sherwood Anderson. It was like, oh, they go work at newspapers. But then I realized, no, everybody is teaching in America. You know, they're, they're, they're all in the MFA programs. And so uh, that's kind of the, the source of income for, I don't know, maybe 90% of, of professional writers, yeah. something like that. Well, I think that um, because coming from the UK, there was more funding for the arts, like mm. public funding. Mm -hmm. And I think that some of the generation of writers above me had been able to rely on grants more or positions wh where they were somewhat supported by the government. Yeah. And that was all slashed in 2010 um, with a conservative government. So I, I didn't ever really think about money. I just saw that there were people like, 10 years ahead of me or something yeah. it seemed to be okay. Um, and it wasn't until I, you know, left college and needed a job that I realized uh, even the jobs that did exist didn't actually really pay. Yeah. So I don't know, maybe, maybe I still haven't decided that this is a viable <laughs> career. <laughs> well, did your career bring you to America or was that for personal reasons that you came? Yeah. When I was 23, uh, I was incredibly lucky. Um, that I got a job at the New York Review of Books, hmm. uh, and that enabled me to move to the U.S. Um, oh, right. to work there. Right. Um, so I worked there for about four years, and then I moved to the New Republic, where I work now, and I've been there. Yeah, I've been here ever since. Right. Right. Okay. Great. Well, let's talk about the end of the affair. I can't wait. I don't know if you know this, if you listen to the show at all. I've mentioned it several times when listeners will write in and say, what's your favorite novel? Or when I am asked that by somebody, I always say the end of the affair. It just has been, uh, I don't know, it hit kind of a sweet spot for me. So I was really interested that you chose it to talk about today. So let's start with the first time you read it. Where were you in life when you discovered the end of the affair? Um, so I have a very clear memory of the first time I read this. It was in my final week of college. Mm, um, mm -hmm. The very pivotal moment of yeah. like, you know, leaving this whole life behind and trying to go out into the world. And it was a really beautiful week. It's like perfect summer weather. And I had this book and I just spent, I think, two days inside reading it. Oh, <laughs> just yeah. completely missed out on all the good weather and like <laughs> all the parties that were happening. <laughs> book is amazing uh and then i think it, it was a rare book i read it, i went straight back to the beginning and read it again yeah right well i i will give a 
spoiler alert uh, in in the introduction. So I've already said that to listeners once, but let me repeat it here. This is just one of those books where the experience is is truly different once you know kind of what it's about and and how the book works. Mm -hmm. And the second and third reads are very different from the first. So let's take a break here. Anyone who wants to come to this fresh and doesn't want it spoiled, uh, they can go and read The End of the Affair and then come back and hear the two of us talk about it. Okay, we're back. Everyone who's here now will hopefully be okay with the rest of our conversation. They've either read the book or they've they've seen the uh, film with Ray Fiennes and Julianne Moore. Have you seen the movie? I haven't ever seen the movie. Oh. Um, I'm aware that it's like a, it's a Neil Jordan movie, right? Yes, with um, Stephen Ray and oh, you right, have right. No, I should, oh. I should, but I I like this book so much. I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm a bit. I'm a bit hesitant to to get someone else's imagination, you know, their images and their accents and faces in this book. I can understand that. Let me tell you, as someone who also has a great deal of love for the book, the movie is fantastic. I think you will not be disappointed. Okay, that's a good recommendation. I have listened to Colin Firth's audiobook. Oh, right. And yeah. that's also very good. Yeah, right. I haven't tried that. I should try that. Uh, but that, uh, the movie is so beautiful and there's a soundtrack that's so good and it just it it just captures the mood so well. And it, it actually kind of mm-hmm. makes me feel, I, I don't know if angry is the right word, but I, I feel a little cheated. I feel like we kind of, we had this great decade of films in the 70s, and then we still had, you know, very decent films in the 80s. And then in the 90s, you know, they could make a movie like this with with these beautiful actors and, and you know, wonderful acting and, and just the direction and all of that. And then I feel like, I don't know if it's because I'm a dad that I've just been watching comic book movies for the last 20 years, but... <laughs> Or maybe these have all moved now to streaming services and and to television and and the small screen. But it just feels like, I don't know, I feel a little cheated that we don't get movies with actors like Ray Fiennes and Julianne Moore and just grownups the way that we Mm -hmm. could get them in the 90s. But maybe... Yeah, uh, now it would have to be, it would be spun out into a six-part series. Yeah, right. And they would have done it. It's a short book. Yeah, uh, right. And every scene in is essential. So I think it need, you need the tightness of the plot to do this book justice, I think. I think that's right. And let's talk about the book, especially since you haven't seen the movie. What about it in particular do you, I, I want to say, do you admire about it, but maybe we should go back to when you were first reading it. What was resonating with you? Why did it keep you indoors for those two days during that beautiful weather? Well, I think like so many of Green's novels, it combines a plot that has incredibly complex machinery mm. with a big idea mm-hmm. and really intense emotions. I mean, I think that it has some of the mastery of plot that you see in his spy novels, you know, the novels that he classes as entertainment yep. rather than literature. And reading back through, I've read the opening of this book 
so many times over the years just studying it. Yeah. The incredible, like, the way in which it's set up is so, <laughs> I don't have to say this, it's so tightly wound because meeting Henry, Morris is meeting Henry. Yeah. And they've already had this enormous deception passed between them. Right. And now he's perpetrating another deception upon this man yeah. who also believes himself to be the victim of the deception by a completely different man with yeah. his wife. And then Ben Drakes is going to hire this private detective. And so it's it's suspense, like taken to the absolute limit in a novel, yes. and yet nothing's confusing. As you go through each page, you're being given the information you need to understand why it's so fraught. Yeah. And it's it's really remarkable. I mean, there is that I don't like the opening graph of this book with its sort of meta meditation on oh, where a story yeah. ends. Like, right. I found that really corny and Actually, the only thing I don't like about this book is that Morris is a writer. Yeah. But I, I will also give Graham Greene that because otherwise probably not. Yeah. Over the years, I've come to understand why he starts with this idea that a story has no beginning or end and that he's chosen to begin in this one moment because it allows him to have the maximum suspense. Yeah. Right. Well, his, yeah, that's true. And, and it also is a little bit of maybe a little, a little bit of writerly pride that he is so aware because he really constructs this book in a way that he, he must have felt very proud of. I mean, it just, like you say, I wrote down as my question for you, what do you like in particular? And then I wrote down my own thoughts. And this is just to kind of give you a sense of how in tune you and I are on this. The first thing I wrote down was a clockwork plot. It's as good mm -hmm. as a detective story. It's either the deepest genre book or the most genre-like literary novel. And the way that everything turns on itself. That first, I guess it's book one in, in Green's construction. The way that he then... Uh, ends up going to see the private investigator and gets Henry to sort of sanction it and and even to thank him for doing it when he's actually doing it out of his own jealousy and his own curiosity and his own obsession with the man that Henry at that point uh, is uh, agreeing to accept is, is just a friend. It's just amazing. And I, I kind of feel a little bit like I was coming at this after having gone through a, a course of study where I was reading all of these modernists and I was reading books like Ulysses and I was reading authors mm -hmm. like Virginia Woolf and and I I got it and I appreciated it, but I wasn't necessarily enjoying it. It, it wasn't something that I would you know, read without thinking about art and thinking about the author and thinking about the project of art. It wasn't until I was reading Graham Greene and books like this where I kind of saw the way that a good storyteller could also be really deep and, and complex without having to be formalistically all over the place. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I, for me, I mean, I read this book literally after taking a week of exams mm, <laughs> um, right. on medieval literature and, and a lot of books that I hadn't really voluntarily read. Uh, and I think one of the reasons that Green is so seductive and is using like every single device he can possibly gather together from like literary techniques to genre techniques is because he wants to suck you in so that he can tell you the story about Catholic yeah. conversion yeah. and sainthood. I mean, that's like the biggest spoiler ever. But um, I had no idea that's where the book was heading. And I was so convinced by it um, mm. when, when you get to that point. Yeah. 
because because it's so tightly wound and there's like only one way this book can move forward the narrative is like completely in control but it doesn't you know you you really are on board with the ideas as you go through right and yet the characters are all sort of fully motivated and even though he's got this he is kind of manipulative and he's choosing he sort of tells us in that first paragraph he's choosing how to tell this story and we know that he's invented it as a you know i I know i'm reading fiction but it does feel like all the characters are consistent to themselves and true to themselves oh definitely i mean one reason for that may be that it is so heavily autobiographical mm. that Green was in love with a woman who yeah. converted to Catholicism and then sort of spurned him. But also the husband, um, Henry, yeah. who I think is probably my favorite character. In this I know. Um, was, <laughs> I know. Um, so Green had an affair with an American woman for many years who was married to a civil servant who was called Henry. Yeah. And Green actually takes his name and puts it in this novel, yeah. which is the ultimate insult. Um, and I think that may be why Henry is one of the more fully realized cockles in literature. I mean, yeah. like he's he's such a good person. Yeah. And he's so self-aware. Like there's a moment at the end when Morris asks him if he'll marry again now that his wife has died. And he says very sadly, but with a lot of insight, that he thought that he did Sarah wrong when he married her and that mm. he wouldn't inflict that on another woman. Yeah. Um, like he really has an inner life in this book, despite yeah. the narcissism of the narrator, which right. I think is sort of incredible. Yeah, yeah. And the way that, I mean, Green, all he often uh, will have these sort of hapless Henrys in his books, and, and his name was Henry, his first name. Right, right. Yeah, but his, uh, his the way... Henry Graham Green. Yeah, I was so uh, admiring the way he creates Henry as, uh, you know, the narrator is is constantly one-upping everybody around him. He's the smartest guy in the room. And he's the, of course, he's also sort of this hugely blind narrator and hugely deceived. So it's a little bit tricky. You know, he, he comes across almost as like the Sherlock Holmes of the book, but then he himself mm-hmm. is sort of following this big it's misconception. so petty and horrible. Yeah. Like with, I was just, I was just looking for it again um, last night and looking at those scenes where he's interacting with the detective. Yeah. Which I think are the, the two, some of the saddest scenes in the book, particularly <laughs> when, because and I can't be reading it, like, every character in this book is an exceptionally good person except yeah. Morris and yeah. the detective is a really good good person who's this kind of working class guy who's just trying to do an honest day's work uh, yeah and, son, and set a good example for his boy and yeah doesn't want and his boy he to keeps humiliating <laughs> his son and even tells him that he has named his son yeah. after the wrong figure from uh, <laughs> from the Arthurian romance and this man, this, this man, who of course has not been able to read these romances himself, yeah. is so disappointed and upset. And then there's a transition into the next chapter where Morris actually reflects on that. But yeah. what he takes away from it is that somehow, like, he's a really good person for feeling bad about it, rather right. than right. Like, that you shouldn't keep embarrassing people and humiliating them and scoring points on them. Yeah, and you know that Green is very aware of it, even if. Morris is not because Green has just it's that beautiful it's a beautiful scene and exchange where I think Green says something like why do we torture the innocent 
like this or something. Mm -hmm. And then he says, uh, when he tells him about the name, Parkas just says, I hadn't heard. And it's just so, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's so moving that he's, he's become aware now that he's named his son. He's been so proud of the name of his <laughs> son and that it all turns out to be just a big mistake. There was another one I wanted to mention where early on in the book where we're talking of, uh, where we see uh, Bendrix with Henry. And Bendrix is saying, you know, it was pouring rain and I opened up uh, an umbrella, realized I had brought the wrong one. There was a tear in it and I started getting wet. And then he says, Henry had no umbrella at all. And it was, <laughs> it was mm -hmm. like, if you could be even more hapless than somebody with a faulty umbrella, it's like Green couldn't let Henry be uh, someone who had a, a functioning umbrella. He had to be somebody who didn't even have an umbrella. Yeah, and I think that's sort of part of his nobility because Henry wouldn't complain about something like that. Right. He's clearly known all the way through the novel that his wife's been cheating on him and very magnanimously and selflessly decided that he's just going to turn a blind eye. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that he's not the sort of idiot husband that Morris thinks he is right he really does know what's going on and he just decides that it's for the best not to be upset about it and not to do anything yeah. um and that he, he's probably already processed a lot of these emotions when he decides you know like he'll go on a walk with morris or at the end I, it, this incredibly touching scene where he says our walks are the only thing i look forward to in life now hmm. and morris still can't understand that he still can't understand this kind of simple need for connection and Henry's ability not to foster any kind of grudge. Yeah, right. And just the the way Henry then ends up representing loyalty, which is such an important part of the book, and the the loyalty that he has, and that the Bendrix, he never really has loyalty. He has love, but it's it's a very selfish love. And mm -hmm. it's it's kind of a snarling territorial love. And you see how these other characters are much more uh, generous and giving and uh, they don't ask for as much in return. And that's true of Sarah and it's true of uh, Henry and it, it, it might be true of God as well. Yeah, and I think that's why uh, the religious element is such an affront to Morris when mm. it finally dawns on him yeah. that God, you can't really be God's rival for someone, which yeah. is a conceit as a novel. Like, she wasn't cheating on anyone. She had become religious. Right. Uh, and that he just can't understand that. He can't move from these incredibly human, competitive feelings for this woman to something completely different. Right. He says, it's it's hard for me to conceive of any God who is not as simple as a perfect equation, as clear as air. And he, it seems like he's, he's looking for a, a, a God who plays tricks or who provokes anger. Like it, it seems like he feels like his situation means that God must have it out for him, that God must be trying to be his rival or trying to be his you know, played this cosmic joke of um, she said a prayer and now she's mine. And instead, uh, you know, the, the God who tests or the God who performs miracles and then expects repayment. And, and Bendrix just doesn't seem to be able to get his mind around what God is doing in this relationship. Yeah, and then the book 
it's it's such a brilliant book. You almost forget it's the source of that famous line: "People always quote about Graham Greene. They hate you as though you exist." Yeah. Is one of the things that that Morris says when he's raging about God. Yeah. Um, that he, for him, it's all a paradox, and it's a clever game of wordplay and of outdoing other people intellectually. Um, I, I don't think he understands what anyone else. Is looking for in faith and spirituality, except this kind of possessiveness. Yeah. There's a, a couple things here that really, you know, made me love this book, even though I'm not a particularly religious person. And for the most part, I have a hard time reading about religion or reading about faith because I, I always come back to the same spot, which is if you don't have faith and if you're not a believer, you can't follow all the arguments. And if you do, then some of those arguments make a lot of sense. And so I was always kind of like looking to bridge that divide, but also having a lot of respect for religion and, and religious feelings. I had a, a friend who once said that he was an atheist, but he liked prayer and he liked the human uh, reaching out for something and seeking and, and looking for it. And I kind of see that here with Sarah, where it's like, even if I don't believe in a miracle, I believe that she believed in a miracle, and how she responds to that is very powerful and moving to me, and then how he responds to it in turn feels very human to me. And so it it's mm -hmm. kind of like I'm seeing religion in action, and you know, there, there's such a, a, a common conceit of people who say, well, i I, I love Jesus and I love God, but I hate organized religion. And, and that's one way of looking at religion. But Green seems to take it into a world of, well, what if I hate God? Or, you know, he has that line of, who loves Jesus more, the jealous Judas or the cowardly Peter? Mm -hmm. And like you say, that, that whole business of, well, if I believe in you, but I don't love you, it's, it's still having belief. Yeah, I've noticed a lot of people who, when I tell them this is one of my favorite books, um, just immediately say, oh, no, I don't like Graham Greene. I'm not a Catholic. Mm. And I'm, I'm not a Catholic, and I'm not particularly religious either. But I think these books, this book in particular is very approachable because he Greene puts people who don't believe actually at the center of it. Because yeah. not only is there Morris, who is sort of, forced into this confrontation with God that he certainly hasn't been looking for and is still very unsure about. But there's also the atheist character um, that Sarah had been seeing, right. um, the atheist sort of preacher who's been hanging out in Clapham Common. And when I read this book um, in 2010, it was, um, it was like that character was so recognizable to me because the new atheists um, were always being talked about. Christopher Hitchens had just had that book, God is mm, Not Great. Mm -hmm. And I really recognize this character as someone who was peddling those arguments. Yeah. And I think Green gives you people like that to sort of hook onto um, so that there's someone that you can identify with in the novel. I and mean, I don't think he's doing it consciously, but I think that the world is populated such in the book um, that there are lots of different varieties of doubt and disbelief um, and and each one of those people kind of has an arc, like the atheist preacher has a crisis of faith where he doesn't know if he can be an atheist anymore. And um, when Morris goes to see him, the atheist says very regretfully, I just don't know what to believe anymore. And then Morris, who can't resist scoring a point, says, well, I thought 
nothing. I thought that was the whole point. You're meant to believe nothing. Mm. Uh, and of course, like the atheist has moved beyond that position now. He's into like an even deeper form of doubt. Yeah, right. Uh, I, I think that's part of what I appreciate is that Green also isn't saying you know, I'm here, I'm a believer, now why don't you grow up and join me? Which always feels kind of condescending to me when that's the position, but he's sort of saying, I'm a reluctant believer, and look how miserable this is. There are there are pluses to it, and I, I need it, I'm going along with it, but there are minuses too, and those don't go away. That It just feels like his wrestling with it is such raw agony. And it feels so real. I, I mean, I feel like he was a novelist who was who was writing about something that was just cutting him to the core. And he was skilled enough to be able to put it into this uh, detective style or spy novel style plot. But his it doesn't feel like it was an academic exercise. It feels incredibly personal and uh, visceral. Yeah, and then and I think the other thing that I almost forget about this book is that it's all happening during the Second World War. Yeah, or maybe right. just at the end of the Second World War, and you realize like how single-minded Morris is because Henry is actually going to work every day during the Blitz while bombs are falling to try and protect his country from being invaded by Germany, and meanwhile Morris is having an affair with his life and is just like sort of with his wife. Uh, and just has this very, very narrow focus on like yeah. what happened with this woman and how can I get her back? Yeah, right. And he's he's got some line in there about war. I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's something about, you know, war was convenient for us or it it, it raised, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it feels like someone who's just lived through it. But I was wondering as I was reading it this time, and maybe we can talk a little bit about your podcast because uh, The Politics of Everything... Uh, I didn't see too many episodes on there that were about books, but it does seem like you take topics like dentistry or, you know, other things like that and and see that there's kind of politics underlying it. And I was wondering if you felt like the politics of this book, if it was recognizable to us, it it felt very Cold War to me, very kind of mid-century. And I'm wondering if you sort of felt the same. If the the themes that Green was wrestling with, although they feel universal and current in a way, it also feels like it's of a particular age that people were really wrestling with at that time. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Definitely, it doesn't have a kind of program or agenda um, as far as politics. I think the the gender politics of the book is pretty interesting, mm. and the class politics is very hard to ignore actually reading it it is a kind of well it, it portrays the passing of a certain era where men like henry are the sort of paternalistic rulers who are looking after the country mm. uh and who are being respected and treated with authority um <sighs> but nothing they, they doesn't know quite what's going to replace it yet and like you still have this character, Parkis, who's really the only working class person in the book, apart from the, the maid that he, he recruits as a source, yeah. um, who is sort of really looks down on in the book. And yeah. I don't think by Green, but I think Morris is very disdainful of him and, and treats him really disrespectfully every time right. he sees him by playing these tricks and wielding his 
class authority and his knowledge over this poor guy. Um, I think there's that. And then I think Sarah is a character that feminist critics of this book would probably have a lot of fun with. Mm. Um, I haven't read any, I've never really read any academic literature on Graham Greene, partly because I encountered him after I left college. Yeah. But she is sort of the objectified woman <laughs> at the center yeah. of the plot. Yeah. And we hear from her, we have her diaries and stuff. But it's all through Morris's eyes. And yeah. Only interested in is she loyal to me or is who's this other guy? Yeah. I'm hoping I was going to ask you about that. And I, I'm, I'm hoping uh, what I would like to believe about the book, because I love the book so much. It reminds me of a conversation I had uh, when I was talking about Dante with a feminist professor of Italian. And I asked her if it if if it bothered her that Beatrice was was practically deified by Dante and and kind of put on that sort of a pedestal. And she said, well, you know, that's true, but let's not forget Beatrice is a badass in this book. And it kind of, I mean, I kind of feel that way about Sarah too. Like it's, I, I get it that she doesn't have the agency that, that Bendrix has. And she's, she's a bit of a, you know, she, she's a bit of a cipher in a way, but she's also incredibly strong and incredibly willful in a way that, you know, it's it's sort of like I, I thought of all those people I know who they get really drunk and then they have a hangover and they say, you know, God, if you just let me survive this, I'll, mm-hmm. I promise I'll go to church every week or something. And then, you know, six hours later, they're saying, well, that was ridiculous. Of course, you know, there's no such thing as prayer and, and, and God's not going to care about this anyway. And who cares? And she instead is sort of saying this love affair and this person was so important to me that I can't just ignore the fact that I, I, I believe that this was a miracle and I am now, I'm going to follow this path. I found this calling and, and that's who I'm, that's who I am. And that's, that's how strongly I feel about it. It's, I found it very admirable and very moving. Yeah. I think she um, has a mind of her own in the book. I guess I have a little bit more of a worldly reading of her resolution Mm. to end this affair and focus on God, which is that she's a woman in war and she really doesn't have much to do, Mm. but she's living in a city that's being bombed where her life is threatened immediately, almost every night with these air raids. And she finds purpose. I mean, she's maybe kind of like, that's why she's straying from the marriage and having this affair, but then, religion becomes her purpose and yeah. she's engaged with it in a very intellectual level she befriends or makes the acquaintance of this atheist preacher um she engages with catholic doctrine um she's writing about it in her journals and she she finds something to ground her life and give it meaning yeah. um and then the other reading i have of it which is probably going a little bit far from the text but like this is a reason for her to end it with Morris, who's obviously a complete shit uh, and the government be controlling the horrible guy. Um, so, yeah, no, yeah. I think um, I think Green does a pretty good job with her as a character. And then the other thing is, I never felt like the story was gendered in a way that prohibited me from identifying with Morris. Mm, uh, right. The, the hatred and jealousy and love that he feels are fairly universal. I mean, he finds outlets for them that are specific to a man at that time. Yeah. But um, some of the 
the sort of like passages in the book that are ruminations on the nature of desire and the way it distracts you and it stops you working and it breaks your discipline. All of that stuff I found to be pretty universal and timeless. Yeah, um, right. And, and it seems like Green obviously used this novel as a vehicle for memorializing his thoughts on like the writing process. He talks about, Morris talks about doing 500 words a day, yeah, right. up and walking away, and that's how Graham Greene wrote. And then when he talks about this love affair kind of ruining it all for him, yeah. that felt incredibly powerful. Yeah. And that does, what you just said does remind me of something else that I thought about this being of its era. It feels like this was an era where it's it's love versus loyalty, but it's also an individual sort of trying to figure out where they fit and being pulled to these higher causes, whether it was communism or or the church or some ideological. It almost seems like people were wondering if they were soldiers in an ideological army. What does that mean for love? What if we fall in love with a Russian spy? Or what if we're a spy and, and are asked to betray our lover? And what if we give up politics for religion? And it, it feels like all of these Cold War spy novel kind of questions. But it you really see it play out here with uh, more of a domestic situation. And it, it seems like it was a... a a question that was on a lot of people's minds during this era. Yeah, it, it's definitely one of the least political treatments of this kind of um, affair in Green's novels, because um, there's another later book he wrote called The Comedians, which is mm. very popular, that describes a very similar love affair between a man and a woman who's the wife this time of a diplomat in Haiti. Um, it's first person, it's really, really similar in in voice to Maurice Bendricks. Um, but in that in that novel, instead of the religious theme, the, the thing that the love affair is contrasted with is the war in Haiti and um, the political turmoil. And it's kind of a it's a much less convincing treatment of the same feelings, mm. partly because the politics really takes over and becomes the kind of action fueled part of the book. Yeah. Whereas this this book the end of the affair is almost like um, a claustrophobic feeling of the main characters being trapped in london there's yeah. nowhere for them to go it's raining all the time yeah <laughs> right one can even go for a walk in this book and feel free <laughs> because they're just getting soaked right and that's like you know, she dies from going out for a walk yeah <laughs> I feel like that's a very underremarked aspect of this book that she literally catches her death of cold and dies yeah. Uh, and yeah, I think uh, the only other thing, as much as I love Graham Greene, I'll read anything he's written. Uh, the only other thing that I think I, I put in the same category as The End of the Affair is The Third Man. Uh, that's the only other thing that I enjoy kind of on a comparable level. Interesting, because it's not a romance at all. So it's you're looking for something completely different from that book? Yeah, although I like the sort of the the frustrated romance. I like the way the plot turns on itself again and, and the way that the, the main character is thinks he's doing one thing and it, it turns out he's doing something else. And then kind of the, the final scene with Anna and the way that he feels like her rejection of him is kind of a comment on his 
the position he's taken, you know, with respect to loyalty or, or friendship. Something about that movie just resonates with me as well. It's the one other green piece of Greenland that uh, strikes the same kind of chord. Oh, yeah. I mean, I have seen, have seen the movie of that, mm. uh, which opens with the famous speech not written by Graham Greene. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we have uh, two more things to do. And then I will let you go. So it, we have a two-part honorarium as a thank you for appearing on the podcast. We'd like to offer you an honorarium. Part one is that we'd like to send you a book of your choice. And I suppose you get a million books sent to you as you're in your position as a, uh, the literary editor of The New Republic. But is there anything in particular that you have on your wish list? Oh, that's a really good question. Um... I may, I mean, maybe another Graham Greene book. I mm. actually really, I haven't read them all. <laughs> I, I got so into like 10 of them. Yeah. I think there's about 20. Yeah. So let's see. I haven't, you know, I haven't read The Power and the Glory, which I feel like is oh. like a huge admission of a Graham Greene yes. fan. But is that one I should read? It is one you should read. And there's a really nice really? edition of it that I will send you. Hmm. Okay. So that's going to be my choice. Okay. And then part two of the honorarium is we'd like to donate to a charitable organization of your choice. Which good cause could use some of our help? Um, well, we talked earlier about libraries, and I know that you uh, often donate to the African Library Project. Yes. Yep. Um, so I would love to um, send okay. a donation that way. Great. We will do that. And just so the listeners know, they probably heard me say this before, this is an organization that has filled the shelves of more than 3,000 libraries for school children in Africa. They gather books up and they have uh, student helpers and other people who, you know, scout troops and things like that who who uh, jump in and, and get books from libraries that they're discarding and from households. And then they put together big crates of books and send them to Africa where the shelves are standing empty and waiting for the books to uh, fill them up. So that is a great cause. Uh, okay, last thing. Surprise bonus question. Are you ready? Okay. And it, it it's a, it's a little bit long. <laughs> Warning. Oh, <wow>. Okay. <laughs> okay. One day after rereading the end of the affair, you find yourself at a restaurant eating a plate of onions when a Nazi plane flies overhead and suddenly a bomb goes off nearby. <laughs> Luckily, no one is hurt, but you're temporarily unconscious. And when you wake up, something strange has happened. It's the freakiest of Fridays. You have swapped bodies with none other than God, the great being in the sky. You are omniscient now and all-powerful. You look down at your creation, Laura Marsh, who is really God in Laura Marsh's body. She says, Ugh, it's going to take me a while to get this straightened out. In the meantime, try not to cock things up too badly. As she says this, you think about how thirsty you are and nearly cause a flood in Bangladesh. Being all-powerful is a dangerous thing. I'll just sit here and think nothing, you say. Oh, there's one thing we should do, God, as Laura Marsh says. We have to figure out this thing with Maurice Bendrix. He's decided he hates us and he wants us to leave him alone. Frankly, it feels a bit unfair, and part of me wants to ignore him until he comes to his senses. Who needs him? But maybe I haven't thought this through enough. And it's true, I've never been human until now. So maybe there's something I'm missing. So what do you think, Laura? Can you, as God, come up with the right way to think about Bendrix? Are you offended by his position? 
Is there anything you can say or do? Should you say anything to him? Or is this little problem not worth your time? Um, <laughs> well, first up, I love that you mentioned the onions because that is my absolute <laughs> favorite part of the whole book um, and the part that I constantly quote to people. Um, I think that to answer your question, God has won by the end of this book. Uh, like Morris, yeah. whether he likes it or not, Morris is in a relationship with God. Yeah. Um, and whether he says he believes or not, he's talking to him all the time. Yeah. Um, and I think he's pretty close to becoming, uh, no, one of the faithful. So I, I don't think there's anything that God needs to do here. And as we know, uh, the author of the book <laughs> continued wrestling with these themes. So yeah. yeah, I think that one's settled. Although I do get um, kind of Satan from Paradise Lost vibes from Bedrix. Yeah. Uh, I, I could see him going off the rails. Um, <laughs> but that would be a whole other novel. Yeah. Right. Well, even that is a bit of a victory. If the, if the goal is belief, uh, there's, you know, there, there's something about uh, believing. But yeah, I'm sure he wouldn't want to see uh, Bendrix becoming a, a fallen angel type. But you think you think God, <laughs> instead of reach, if you were God, instead of reaching out and saying, it's going to be OK, my son, come and join me. I will. uh I will bring you into the fold and wrap you in my enveloping hug of love. You would just sit back and say, you'll come around now that you know my power and, and who I am and that I exist. I'm comfortable just waiting for you to start to love me. I think so. I mean, I think that the book ends at such a note of white hot rage Yeah. that I've always imagined what happens next is that Bendrick's, is going to spend a few years just trying to cool down. Yeah. And then everything that's happened that he describes here will sort of mature and turn into something else. So I think, yeah, I think that he's, he's pretty much sold by the time he, he gets to the end of the book or even in the earlier chapter. Um, there's so much rage. And I think it is, it is a book, right, about how rage and hatred often are these weird disguises for love. Mm, right. Maybe we should write a sequel. We'll do. Uh, we'll each write two hundred and fifty words a day, and then we'll we'll get there eventually. <laughs> what, what would it be called? Getting the affair going again. Yeah. <laughs> Oops, sorry, it wasn't quite over. <laughs> <laughs> well, the podcast is called "The Politics of Everything." The co-host is Laura Marsh of the New Republic. Laura Marsh, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Yeah, thank you for talking to me. It was a lot of fun. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Wasn't that great? I loved having that talk. Maybe we can have Laura back to talk about the power and the glory, since I am shipping her a copy of it. Is that enough of a trip to Greenland for you? <laughs> Maybe in 2022 we'll get there. Laura is the literary editor of The New Republic and the co-host of The Politics of Everything with the intrepid Alex Perrine. That guy, I used to read his media roundup every year which was just the best. He was like the, the print John Stewart. Okay, thank you, Laura, for joining me today. And to Emily, our emailer, good luck to you. And to all the rest of you, thank you for being here with us. I'm so glad you took the time, and I look forward to welcoming you back. We have some amazing shows coming up. It's going to be a great, great fall, I can already tell. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>